This episode brought to you by Transporter. Get your own Transporter today at filetransporterstore.com. Mission Log Supplemental Number 24, the one with George Takei. Welcome to the supplemental of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. I'm Ken Ray. And let me stop you right there, John. I would not say welcome to the supplemental. I would say so far, with the exception of maybe one other, welcome to the supplemental. Well, is is that that a little bit of a swipe at some of our other guests? No, it's not a swipe at some of our other guests, but come on, let's face it. We had a great great supplemental recently with Maria Nasertis. Absolutely a fantastic interview to do. Absolutely a fantastic interview to bring to people. We had a great interview with Will Wheaton. Uh, Absolutely fantastic interview. Absolutely wonderful thing to bring people. I think the Bob Orsi from a little over a year ago now was uh, was a really amazing thing, and I think a lot of people like that. And I and I feel bad about the people that I'm leaving out, but dude, today's episode is so decay. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's George Decay. There's it's much... George Decay. I know. I know. Yeah. Hey, look, Michelle Nichols. That was a fantastic interview. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I love when we talk to the Gorn. I love when Bobby we talk Clark. to Bobby Clark. Honestly, yeah. I love all of these. Okay. Yeah. But this one is just so decay. It's 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 a very special Takei episode of Mission Log. Um, but here's the thing. We want to do an interview because it's a little bit different. It, you would expect that we're, we're going to sit down with George and we're going to talk about Star Trek and tell us about the time you did this and tell us about the time you did that. And sometimes, mm-hmm. again, you and I will write up all these questions and I'll write questions, you'll write questions, and we'll, we'll share them, we'll look at each other's notes, and then we'll just launch into the interview. And sometimes... You start an interview, and then all the notes go out the window. Yep. Yeah. And you say, man, I should have closed the window. Now we're just going to have to make stuff up. <laughs> well, fortunately, we didn't have to make up a lot of stuff because uh, George, like a lot of people, because he is so practiced and he's so good, you wind him up and let him go. And we didn't talk a lot about Star Trek. Yeah. I, but I, we talked about – I mean, it's – I Yeah. Yeah, it's a a great interview. I I don't mean it's a great interview. Like it's a like boy, do we do a great job? I just mean I mean that that I am lucky enough, honestly, to have been able to be in on this conversation. Is just is just still the kind of thing that amazes me today, and I'm very happy that we get to bring the conversation to other people too. Well, we wanted to intro it like that to say that we don't talk a lot about Star Trek, but I, I thought you nailed it pretty well. That what we do is we talk about how George is living the Star Trek life. So I hope that's mm. what people get out of it when they listen to it, because um, it, it's really about his values and his interests. And, and I think you hear, you hear that vision of Star Trek throughout what he discusses. So I know that people are going to enjoy that. But we have a little bit of business to take care of before we get to that. Um, as we release this episode, it's right at two weeks before the 2015 Creation Entertainment Star Trek Las Vegas convention. I'm going to be there. You're gonna I am be also there. going to be there, yes. Yes, yes. And uh, <laughs> we will have our table. And um, I can't wait to see everybody again. Uh, yeah. That, that's the yeah. best part about it. I look, so look forward to that. Um, we do have a panel scheduled, the Mission Log Live panel scheduled for Sunday in the DeForest Kelly Theater. Uh, please check your local channels for listings because that may change. We don't yeah. know. <laughs> Remember last year when we were in the big room on Saturday? Yeah, they'll never do that again. <laughs> I wonder who we upset. Right. Oh, uh, well, you know, hey, Sunday, 
You're going to be walking around. If you're like me, you're going to walk around Sunday afternoon thinking, well, I don't want it to end. Well, you know, come hang with us because it, it, it will very much not be over until like 5.01. <laughs> right. and then then we're just out of there which know. i think is when our panel ends yeah and, uh, and then yeah. and then 503 we'll be at the masquerade bar <laughs> right right 504 Maybe. under a table um <laughs> but speaking of tables come to our table in the vendor room too because we'll have a lot to do there not only is it just fun to catch up with everybody and chat but we we got new stuff going on with mission log I, i'm not I, I don't want to reveal all here just come by because there's new stuff to talk about um and one of the cool things though that we can talk about right here is transporter so you know that they've supported mission log in the past and they are supporting us again not only for today's episode but at the convention we will have four four transporter devices to give away so one every day we'll do a drawing every day and you'll actually get to go home with a transporter device so if you're at the convention come by uh stop by the table you'll be able to leave your name and then you may be lucky and uh, and win a transporter Ken, what is a transporter? It's that thing that sort of like it breaks you down into nothing and it moves you all across the galaxy. Makes you young again, apparently, too. Yeah, it does. It cures diseases. It does all sorts of things. <laughs> That's what it is in the Star Trek universe. Um, in the at our table, a transporter is you can kind of think of it like a an external hard drive, but it's a lot more than that. It's it's connected to the internet. You hook it up to your computer, but it does not physically hook up to your computer. In fact, it works best if it's. It, I mean, it's. <laughs> You can use it as an off-site storage. You can use it off-site backup. You can use it to share files with other people. You kind of think of it as your own personal cloud service, like you know a Google Docs kind of thing or, or a Dropbox kind of thing, except there are a few differences. First of all, your stuff is living on a physical device that you know where it is, and so you have that level of control over it. Whereas you know with Google, it's living on their server farms. Uh, with Dropbox, it's living on their server farms. And... You can trust those, and that's great. But if you're somebody who wants, you know, an added level of security, or just, you know, to feel like I know what's going on with my data, Transporter is fantastic for that. It's also great for uh, collaborating with people. So I have this thing that I do on a daily basis. There's a publication for iOS. I do not work with the person who actually does the layout for it. What I do is I take my script, I take the pictures, I put them on my transporter. She actually doesn't have a transporter. But she's able to see, oh, because I've shared this folder with her, she's able to see that that's changed. So she goes in, grabs all the pictures, grabs all the documents, turns it into a magazine, and then puts that back on my transporter, and then I've got that. And we do that on a daily basis, and it works like, uh, I mean, it just hums along. So, um, I mean, it really, it really is a neat device. The thing that was most interesting to me, or one of the things that was interesting to me at last year's uh, convention, because they were a supporter of our table last year as well, uh, was talking to people, and they would say, could you do this with it? And I'd think about it for a second. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you could actually do that. I mean, the, the, the number of different, and, and that happened like five, six times, the number of different ideas that people had, they were like, well, that's interesting. I've been looking for something that would do this. Would it do that? Um, and it really is a, I mean, it sounds really simple to say, yeah, it's just an external hard drive. Uh, it really is a versatile device. And a lot of people come with their own ideas of how they would use it. And it turns out, yeah, it would work like a charm. So, yeah, filetransporterstore.com is the site if you want to find out more or if you want to talk to somebody about it and possibly win a transporter of your very own, uh, do stop by our table, which I think is, is table number <laughs> and And we'll be happy to you know, shake your hand and, and, and say hey and, uh, and tell you 
as much or as little about the transporter as you want to know. Right. Well, what's so cool is that uh, you and Rod and I use a transporter during the production of Mission Log, and <laughs> you can actually see a video about that if you go to missionlogpodcast.com. And right now, transporter, th- this is unheard of in our history with them. They are offering a huge discount. $75 off the purchase of a one terabyte or two terabyte transporter device for our listeners in North America. If you use the code ML75, ML75 at filetransporterstore.com or filetransporter.com slash mission log, then you can get $75 off the purchase of a one terabyte or two terabyte transporter. And we do thank them very much for, uh, for supporting both this show and our time in Vegas. And let me just say, woo, Vegas. <laughs> Can't wait. So uh, the first burning question that I have, George, is um, the naked time. I, I have yeah. to know, was it your call to be shirtless? Because what I picture is they're ready to roll camera and you say, no, 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 no. Not with this shirt on. Somebody. Well, as a Matt. As a matter of fact, that was that episode was being directed by uh, Mark Daniels. Yes, and uh, he came to my dressing room. Uh, George, let's see what you look like with the shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, what, what, who is this? <laughs> I, I mean, he's my director, but uh, and we're in the privacy of my dressing room. What kind of uh, director do we have? <laughs> I took my shirt off, and he looked me up and down, and he said. Okay, and then he walked out, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he uh, he sent uh, Minion over to say we're going to shoot that scene shirtless. So it was not my decision; it was Mark Daniels. Uh, he's a and he was a very prescient guy because that's what captured the audience's eye. I think. <laughs> well, the the rest is history, indeed. Well, after he walked out, I got an idea of what, why he came in to see me shirtless. So uh, I started immediately doing some uh, push-ups and uh, sit-ups <laughs> <laughs> to be uh, buffed up for that scene. Nice. Let me ask, so, because that's, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a thing that you would not have expected. And obviously you say you did not expect the uh, director to come in and ask that. When you got on to Star Trek, when you're doing Star Trek, do you have an idea, like a sense of who Sulu as a character is? Or was Sulu at the time, you know, whatever lines you were handed that week? I mean, did you know this guy, this, well, this Sulu character? Well, I had character? to build a uh, backstory for him. I mean, that's the actor's job. Yes, as you say, um, the uh, script was what it was that was handed to me mm-hmm. and uh, it was pretty minimal <laughs> you know i think the uh, longest uh, soliloquy i had was i i, I served war three <laughs> but uh uh you know i tried to bring a little bit of as a matter of fact i started lobbying the writers and uh, directors and gene himself uh trying to suggest ideas, you know, to give uh, Sulu a family or to uh, give Sulu uh, a back life beyond uh, what we saw, uh, his life in uh, Starfleet Academy. Um, None of them took. (laughs) It was, you know, when you're like uh, fifth or sixth banana, you know, (laughs) the focus is all all on uh, the trio there, the triumvirate. So uh, uh, 
the effort was at that time, I thought, for naught, but I kept it up anyway. And ultimately, I got a captaincy. So uh, uh, the seeds eventually do germinate in space. Well, I'd like to ask about that simply because it, it seems like there is a, a game of politics that an actor plays while on a TV show. And you've got a handful of producers, you've got uh, directors coming in different weeks, you've got different writers every week. Um, can you talk to us a little bit in specifics about who you would go to, who your allies were kind of on the show, and, and what that process was like for you? Um, well, you you're asking me to think back uh, 50 years, or almost 50 <laughs> years. So, you know, the a memory goes uh, grows a little uh, uh, feeble, but... Uh, uh, yes, uh, I uh, had, well, Gene was certainly uh, the most prominent one, and he was a very uh, accessible uh, person to talk to. Um, Morris Chapnick was uh, also a very, uh, well, he had Gene's ear, so I lobbied him, but he was not as, um, as uh, it was difficult to have a uh, genuine back and forth, because I think he was much more guarded because he was, uh, I think, a bit insecure in his position, you know. So he uh, would not be as communicative, but he would listen. Uh, uh, John uh, Black, one of the uh, writers, as a matter, matter of fact, he was the one that wrote uh, Naked Time. He was oh, very chatty, yeah, very yeah. friendly guy. Um, uh, Norm Spinrad was, was as well. Um and uh, uh, amongst the directors, it's hard. I remember Mark because uh, he did Mark Daniels because he did uh, uh, he directed uh, Naked Time. But if you mention names, I will remember some of the other directors. Uh, it's been a long, long time, five decades. Sure, sure. I want to ask you. Uh, well, first of all, I got to say you mentioned your captaincy a moment ago. I know so many people who watch Star Trek and watch the movies, and, and, and they have particular things that make them cry. Almost everyone uh, cries when, uh, of course, when Spock dies at the end of Star Trek II. Yes. Oh, the, yeah. There are two things that gave me tears when we just recently rewatched the movies. Uh, the first was, um, I believe it was in Star Trek Three actually, when, when the, the captain of the Excelsior tells Kirk, if you leave here, you don't get to come back. If you leave right now, this is it. And he chooses his friend over his position. That's one thing. The thing that totally surprised me, though, at the end of Star Trek Six, when you and Kirk say goodbye to each other as captains and, and you go flying off, that, that totally moved me this time in a way that completely surprised me when we're going back and doing the rewatch. I want to ask oh, you about that character independent of you when you watch the reboots or well let me ask you i assume you have I, I can't imagine you could have avoided them if you wanted to but have you watched the have you watched john cho playing sulu on screen at this point i have when you watch those are you watching your character or are you watching is john cho playing some guy in some movie i mean what is your since sailing off as captain in star trek six what do you feel like is your position with that character at this point well, uh, you have to accept the fact that uh, the uh, uh, role has been recast. Mm -hmm. And John is a, a friend from way back. Uh, he worked with us with the uh, East-West players long before he became a professional actor. And uh, uh, he has p uh, taken possession of the role. So uh, I've been able to kind of... Uh, 
can uh, pull back and and, uh, and contain my Sulu within me. Uh, that is John Cho's uh, uh, Sulu that I'm watching, as we are watching uh, uh, Chris Pine's uh, Kirk or uh, Zach Quinto's uh, Spock. Uh, I think, um, for me, uh, I approach it as an actor, and I know that uh, each actor brings his own imprimatur to uh, the character, and uh, I accept that. And John's doing a fine job, given what he's given um, I, I want to ask you, uh, going back to uh, talking about Gene Roddenberry. So you said that he was somebody who was very accessible to you on the original series. And then um, you had a period in the 70s where the animated series had come along and then uh, kind of gearing up for phase two that then became the motion picture. Um, and I'm curious how uh, how you felt your personal, your friendly relationship with Gene was over the years, um, and did that change at all? I, I know that clearly when you got to the second movie and beyond, he had less of a role to play. It was sort of an honorary title uh, that he was given on those movies. So I'm curious uh, what what your uh, personal and professional relationship was like with him over those, well, a couple of decades, actually. Well, um he um uh, once the uh, tv series was uh, canceled uh, i became uh, uh, very much active in the uh, political arena and uh, as a matter of fact i even uh, tossed my head in the brink for a city council seat when uh, unexpectedly the man i was supporting for mayor of los angeles uh, who did not make it the first time around tom bradley uh, made it the second time around and there was that vacancy created. So, uh, uh, persuaded by my uh, political friends, I uh, ran for for that uh, vacancy. And uh, I asked uh, both uh, Gene and Majel uh, for uh, uh, support and assistance. And uh, uh, Gene was fantastic. Uh, My first fundraising dinner uh, that I had uh, at a Chinese restaurant was uh, 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 the ones uh, hosted by uh, Gene Roddenberry, and he was the uh, keynote speaker. And so we got a good uh, number of uh, Star Trek fans as well as uh, political types uh, to come to that fundraiser. And so uh, he uh, was um, uh, very, very supportive in another arena altogether. Uh, and uh, when, uh, well, all my, or most of my Star Trek friends uh, were very helpful as well. Uh, uh, on my other campaigns, uh, Nichelle, you know, I'd organize a fundraiser for uh, uh, a cause, and uh, we needed uh, an entertainer at those dinners. And Nichelle was always very generous about performing and uh, uh, lending her glorious, <coughs> glorious voice to the uh, event. And she uh, she did uh, so with my various fundraisers as well. Walter was uh, very helpful. Leonard was very helpful. Um, D is a very shy person, so uh, uh, he did not like um, dealing with cra- uh, crowds, and I knew that, so I did not ask him. But the uh, others, um, well, D and uh, and uh, Bill, uh, you know, oh, Bill is a Canadian, so he uh, <laughs> uh, is not that involved in uh, the American political scene. But the others were very helpful, and I appreciated that. And I think uh, it was because Gene set the pattern uh, 
uh, he was uh, the uh, leader again in in the uh, in the political arena for me. Well, what was it that actually drew you into politics? I mean, you you had acted, of course. You you still acted. Um, what was it that made you think? I mean, what made you want to run? Well, I'd been uh, political arena and uh, social justice causes. Uh, I was involved in the civil rights movement uh, uh, when I was in my late teens. Uh, I was involved in uh, the peace movement during the Vietnam War, uh, primarily because um, as a child, I was imprisoned in U.S. uh, internment camps, uh, imprisoned behind uh, U.S. barbed wire fences, simply because we happened to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. It was one of the most egregious violations of the United States Constitution. There were no charges, and therefore no trial, because you need charges to contest in order to have a trial. The central pillar of our justice system, due process, disappeared, and uh, over 120,000 Japanese Americans on the uh, West Coast were rounded up and imprisoned. I was a child then, from five to nine years old, Uh, but I do have my childhood memories of that. But when I became a teenager, uh, I started reading omnivorously. And uh, the um, civics books talked about these shining ideals of our democracy. And I couldn't reconcile that with my what I knew to be my boyhood uh, incarceration. And uh, I couldn't find anything about it in our history books at that time. And so I sat down with my father to uh, have him... Uh, explained to me uh, why that was. And having been inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King, I gave my father a pretty hard time. I challenged him, why did you go, Daddy? For what reason? And why was the government, you know, with no charges, uh, sending us to prison? And uh, uh, despite the hard time that I gave him, I must say that I learned about our American democracy from a man who, in the middle of his life, in his 30s, lost everything. My father lost everything. His business, our home, our freedom. And yet, he was able to educate me on uh, our democracy. He said, our democracy is a people's democracy. And it can be as great as a people can be, but it's also as fallible as people are. And when... uh, a nation gets swept up by war hysteria and racism. You know, uh, it, it's very difficult for true democracy, the ideals of our democracy, to uh, prevail. In fact, even the, the president of the United States got swept up in that. And he signed an executive order, 9066, which uh, uh, ordered that incarceration. And so he said, said, our democracy is vitally dependent on people who cherish the ideals of our democracy, the shining ideals, the best ideals, and who are actively engaged in the process. And sometimes you have to hold democracy's feet to the fire. And uh, then to illustrate what he was talking about, he uh, took me to downtown Los Angeles to the uh, Adlai Stevenson for Headquarters uh, campaign. And uh, 
he says we volunteered, but actually he volunteered me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, and it's it's a lot of fun, a political campaign. And it does have a lot of theater. And, I, you know, I had that theatrical uh, bent. And uh, working with other passionate people, committed to someone uh, who was able to articulate the ideals of our democracy so eloquently, like Governor Adlai Stevenson, you know, really galvanizes people. And uh, so from that Stevenson campaign, I got involved in other uh, political campaigns for uh, U.S. Senate and governor and various social justice issues. And when the movement began to, to uh, get uh, get an apology and redress for that unconstitutional uh, uh, incarceration, uh, I became actively involved in that. I testified at uh, congressional commissions. So I had a history of... Uh, of being active in the political arena, but I thought that I would always be uh, an activist, a volunteer, and uh, I never expected to be running for political office, but in that circumstances, I was, when uh, Tom Bradley, our councilman, ran for uh, mayor, um, I was uh, the chairman of his Asian American campaign, and uh, so I, you know, I made a lot of political friends then. And when Tom got elected uh, mayor, uh, those friends uh, said, "I have um, visibility, ID, because of uh, uh, Star Trek." And uh, so that's a leg up. And I thought, well, this is another, perhaps another uh, new challenge. I'll boldly go where I've never been before. <laughs> <laughs> to coin a phrase. And so I threw my hat in the ring. And as it turned out, uh, I loved it. I loved campaigning. I loved going from door to door, talking issues. <laughs> I, I'm having a slight uh, vocal problem, so forgive me. I, I have a cup of tea here, so I'll take a sip. D don't worry about it. We actually uh, very often talk about our mutual love of tea on our show. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, that, that'll be our next podcast. So, so, so uh, um, you know, political activism was already an established part of my life. Um, I actually read somewhere that you served for about 10 years um, at, on the board of directors for the uh, Southern California Rapid Transit Project, but, which leads me to ask, uh, when will we have a decent subway uh, throughout Los Angeles? You mean you haven't ridden our subway? <laughs> I, I have. I, I've it taken... is an outstanding subway system. It, it, it is, is beautiful, the most have... modern subway system in the United States. Shame on you. Are you an Angelino? <laughs> uh, I, I am now, actually. I, I live in... You uh, live here. I live in the same neighborhood, yeah. Uh, well, shame you? on you. <laughs> no, I, I have <laughs> You know, uh, uh, sci-fi fans should be aware of environmental pollution. How oh, we're spoiling the air and the water and the soil that uh, we we live in, and uh, the practical uh, part of being an Angelino, you know, you're, I'm sure you hate uh, rush hour traffic. Oh, of course. And uh, spending hours. I mean, when when you get behind the wheel, you've punched into work already. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you use public transit, that time is still yours. 
you can read the newspaper. If you're sleepy, you can sleep. Or if you're a workaholic, you can do work on the public transit uh, system. And what we uh, made greater, in fact, I was the one that spearheaded the arts and transit program where, uh, you know, mothers with children and elderly people are uh, a little skittish about going to a subterranean space where they might be alone. And so we wanted to give those people a sense of uh, security and comfort in uh, in our subway stations. And so we uh, uh, have as a policy, uh, 1% of the station cost would go into an art project. So, um, and uh, the artists to be selected from the community above the uh, the uh, uh, station, and uh, uh, to have that uh, uh, subway uh, station become an extension of the uh, community, and uh, to have a different architect to design each station, and the, the mandate to them was. To for it to be compatible with the neighborhood above. You know, Washington, D.C. has an outstanding uh, uh, metro rail system, uh, and they have a handsome uh, uh, architectural pattern. Uh, It's it's appropriate for the national capital. It's the the waffle design Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in every station. It echoes uh, Union Station, uh, the railway station in, uh, in Washington. But there... Because the uh, the architecture is the same, you become very dependent on signage, and they have terrible signage. The letters identifying the stations are tiny and uh, and backlit. Uh, we, uh, uh, here in uh, Los Angeles, our subway systems have an identity of their own. For example, when you roll into the uh, uh, Hollywood and Vine uh, station. You'll see palm uh, pillars that are shaped like palm trees, you know, and so you know you're you're at Hollywood and Vine. When you get to Pershing Square, the art is uh, a neon art, and you know you're at Pershing Square. You're not dependent on signage. Just the uh, statement of the si- uh, the uh, station uh, tells you that. So, uh, as your next assignment <laughs> this afternoon, you are to go. Uh, where do you live? Well, I, you I, the... I, I live in the same neighborhood as you, and in fact, I, I was going to say I, I've taken the uh, the Hollywood and Vine train down to Union Station many, many times. So, I, good I like, for you. Well, I, you do use the station. I, I do, what are I, you I, complaining I, about? I want to hear your complaint. I just, <laughs> I, I just wish we had more. I wish we had a lot more. Um, well, but, yeah, you can't. Yeah. You know, if we didn't build it, you wouldn't have what you have. Yeah, and we yeah. can't do it all overnight. Yeah. It takes a long time. It takes, believe me, it's a battle. You know, we got the half cent sale ta- sales tax passed, uh, and I hope you voted for it. And mm. that was to be the local match. We went to Washington, and we it, it was a real struggle because we have a lot of uh, arch reactionary Congress people, and uh, we were able to get the uh, federal uh, match. And then we went to Sacramento, and after we got the funding all together, <clears throat> we had to have public hearings to set the route alignment. And there are some people that wanted that wanted it right near uh, their neighborhood. Others that wanted it, uh, didn't, didn't have want to have it anywhere near their neighborhood, right, you know. Right. So you hit, uh, sit through all those public hearings. And then the, once you get the route alignment set, then the station location 
It's a long, you don't know what you're talking about when you think you can, you can get it overnight. <laughs> it takes years <laughs> and <laughs> literally billions. The uh, first leg, uh, first, uh, leg from downtown LA to uh, uh, Chandler in the Valley costs $4 billion. So uh, you, please do your homework before you make a statement like that. Oh no, it I, I, takes I, a long time. I, George, I, I love that we have something at all. Like I said, I just wish we had more. And, and believe me, I, I would always yes. Vote and for I hope more you're, you're contributing to it, yeah, uh, getting yeah. more, yeah. advocating for it rather than ba- bad mouthing it. No, no, not at all. I, we I need a groundswell awesome. of citizens yeah. saying we need this. Let's get it done. Let's get uh, more funding for it. I want it in my neighborhood. The, the most worthwhile thing of this conversation is that uh, now on the air for all of our thousands of listeners, I've been publicly shamed by George Takei. Uh, <laughs> well, no, you did it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> complaining about a system and not that, uh, and complaining that it didn't happen overnight. No. <laughs> you know, the star, uh, star uh, ship enterprise is not built with, with the snap of a finger. Well, it takes a lot of money and it, I mean, just the, the set takes a lot of money and a lot of work. Yeah. And, to build a subway system when you have to bore through uh, underground, just the engineering part of it, but then the social impact of it, you know, the the the, the neighborhood uh, complaining or the businesses complaining, uh, the uh, uh, drivers complaining because they have uh, detours. It is not an easy job. I I I was in the in the trenches of that, literally in the, in the trenches for eleven years. Wow. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you a question. You, <laughs> you, what's fascinating to me is, I mean, you start off by talking about being in an internment camp from the age of five to nine. You, you obviously have a tremendous amount of passion for a tremendous number of issues. I did not know about the, uh, about the public transportation issue that, I mean, your involvement in it until we sat down here. If you step back a bit, do you consider yourself a, What's the best way? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're headed, where we are now and where we're headed? You know, you can't get things done if you're a pessimist. You're defeated already with pessimism. Mm. You have to be an optimist. And yes, uh, not uh, a rose-colored glasses uh, optimist. Know the realities, but still be able to see beyond that. That's what made, the, uh, made it possible for Gene Roddenberry to get uh, Star Trek on the air. If he were a, a pessimist, he would have been defeated by the first rejection. Mm. It takes strong vision and an optimistic uh, view, knowing that there are going to be obstacles, knowing that there, there, there are going to be opposition, and still be able to uh, uh, see beyond and, and be a problem solver. How do I deal with that opposition? How do I struggle with that uh, obstacle? How do I overcome that? And then you realize your vision beyond. Um, So I'm an optimist (laughs) (laughs) to answer your question. Um, There was uh, an episode of The Twilight Zone that, um, and I'm a big fan of that show, and I think probably a lot of people in our audience are fans of that show, but there was an episode that you did that um, the encounter, yeah, called. the encounter, yeah. That uh, according to um, many sources, was not rerun after its original airing. It is available. It was now. not. 
It is available now on DVD and Blu-ray. It is available on Netflix. And I watched it very recently. Um, and it was a very controversial show. Um, and just to set it up for the people who have not seen it, and I highly recommend it, um, you co-star with Neville Brand. He as a uh, as a, a, a war hero, and Neville Brand in real life was a war hero. Um, That's right. So this is 20 years after World War II. Uh, he's an American GI who's in his attic cleaning out, and he's visited by a young uh, Japanese-American man. And uh, the entire scene takes place in that attic as they sort of rehash uh, uh, the skeletons in the closet, as it were, about their participation or their knowledge of what happened during World War II. And... Um, I, I think that there were a couple of things about that episode that that maybe struck the American viewing public at the time uh, as something a bit difficult to, to grapple with. The idea that this was a very imperfect man, this American GI character, and then uh, the the conflict with the young Japanese-American man. Um, I wonder if you could just uh, talk about that with us for a moment and kind of what your mindset was going into that show and then seeing the finished product of that show, uh, particularly given your history, um, having come from the Japanese internment camps, et cetera. Yes, no, not Japanese internment camp, because well, we were not imprisoned by the Japanese. No, no, no the, the American. The Japanese-American. Yes. You know, I, uh, it's, it, I see it in print all the time, Japanese uh, internment camp. Mm. It was an American internment camp for Japanese-Americans. Right. Or uh, a shorter way of saying it is Japanese-American internment camp. Because... Um, well, it's it's plain English, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, there were Japanese uh, um, uh, prisoners of war camp. They were run by the Japanese, and when you say Japanese internment camp, you, you, it sounds like it was run by the Japanese. Right. right. It was not. No. Very we true. were imprisoned in our own country by our own government. It's a Japanese American internment camp. Please get those that term uh, correctly. Of course, I'm always correcting people. <laughs> That's fine. On that, uh, but on the Twilight Zone, um, I uh, I got the script for that. As a matter of fact, the uh, director of that script was um, the assistant director on the Playhouse Ninety I did, which was uh, one of the most distinguished um, live. Uh, 90-minute television uh, uh, drama uh, on uh, television at, at that time. It's, it's a landmark uh, a series written by some of the uh, most uh, talented upcoming young writers of that time, uh, people like Reginald Rose, Patty Chayefsky, uh, Rod Serling was one of them. He wrote, for, he wrote some of the mo most memorable scripts uh, for uh, Playhouse 90. And I did a script called uh, titled... Uh, 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 made in Japan, uh, playing a uh, young Japanese soldier who returns uh, to post-war Japan, a defeated soldier. Uh, and it was a wonderful part. Uh, I was betrothed to uh, a Japanese girl played by uh, uh, Nobu McCarthy, who I discovered when I come back to Japan uh, is um, in love with an, uh, an American soldier and uh, part of the occupying uh, uh, force. And uh, uh, the two of them have a lover's quarrel on a bridge, and she accidentally falls off that bridge. And I'm, as the uh, embittered uh, 
love uh, or I, we, we weren't lovers. Uh, it was a arranged marriage, uh, embittered uh, pot- uh, potential groom and a defeated soldier uh, is the one that's accused of it. And so it was a great part. And the assistant director on that was a guy named <clears throat> Bob Butler, who went on to become a director very quickly. It was a year after I did Playhouse 90, I think. Uh, and uh, he uh, called me in to, uh, to uh, play that part. I read the script. It was fantastic. Uh, a, a, a two-hander with uh, a lot of juicy red meat uh, there. Uh, the uh, script was a Twilight Zone script. Mm-hmm. You know, those are fantastical scripts. They're not realistic. I mean, uh, Bill Shatner did one where someone's uh, um, on the, um, uh, he's flying in a plane and someone's on the wing of a, a plane up in the air. Right. You know, it, it's not true. It, it's uh, it's fantasy. Well, uh, the problem with uh, the uh, uh, Twilight Zone script uh, encounter was people took that literally. Uh, Neville Brand was a real war hero. And he was playing uh, a veteran of the uh, Pacific uh, War. And I was playing a Japanese-American. And we were imprisoned in, uh, in uh, the, the internment camps because we were, you know, just because of our, our, our face, because we looked like the people at Bomb Pearl Harbor. Uh, we were uh, thought to be potential spies, saboteurs, fifth columnists. And um, that fantasy... Uh, uh, and a Japanese American uh, uh, having a father involved in that was pure fantastical, but it uh, was still too close to the war, only 20 years, and uh, the uh, sensitivities uh, were still strong, and uh, the uh, uh, Japanese American uh, Citizens League, which is comparable to the uh, NAACP uh, uh, from the African American community uh, objected to it and uh, and uh, CBS was uh, very responsive uh, to that and they pulled it from uh, any second airing and uh, it wasn't until uh, uh, the series was, was off and uh, the they made a um, DVD of the entire series that or video of the entire series that people got to see it for a second time. Uh, but uh, uh, I understand the sensitivities back then. But, uh, but I thought, uh, you know, it's Twilight Zone, and people would accept it as Twilight Zone. But uh, they said it's too close to uh, reality, and uh, that's what we were accused of potentially being. So, uh, uh being uh, very uh, thoughtful and uh, responsive to those concerns, CBS pulled it for the uh, uh, run of the TV series. Along a similar line, I mean, uh, obviously not similar because it's not the same uh, topic, but um, I guess it's 21 years after the end of uh, World War II that you're actually sitting at the helm of a starship that that sort of reads a little bit like a UN, if you think about it. I mean, there there are a number of people represented from a number of different uh, cultures, including alien cultures. Was there anything like? Did you face any kind of blowback, or did the show face any kind of blowback, or did you personally hear any sort of bad tidings about the fact that you were on this show, or had? I mean, since there was no uh, specific World War II tie-in, did people look at you as 
oh, there's a guy on the bridge of the Enterprise, or was there still uh, some some sort of hold, some sort of animosity or uh, or racism even? Star Trek was a landmark production, and that the very diversity, the visual diversity as w- as well as the audible diversity, was uh, the point of the show. Mm-hmm. Yes, as you said. <clears throat> The uh, it was the uh, United Nations um, in in the future, uh, all cultures and uh, and uh, ethnicities uh, were visible there, working together in concert. That was the point. And uh, uh, so, no, uh, I I'm not aware of any uh, negative blowback. If anything, it was overwhelmingly positive. And uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, when um, there was the um, uh, prospect of cancellation after the second season and the uh, letter-writing campaign was mounted uh, by the fans, uh, my father joined in on that, and he pointed out that very thing, that it it shows uh, America in Mm. its diversity, in its rich diversity, coming together and working in concert. It is a powerful statement. And he, he, at the beginning of, the, of his letter, he said, I'm George Takei's father, so obviously I'm <laughs> biased. But the, uh, what the, uh, the statement being made by Star Trek is something that is an important statement to be made. The, uh, the uh, ratings may be low, but my father said he, uh, he believes it will grow. And so uh, I cast my vote for a uh, renewal for a third season. And I was very touched by that. I never expected my father to be writing letters like that. Uh, And he was the one that actually tried to uh, give me some guidance when I, when I said I wanted to be an actor, (laughs) the the typical uh, guidance that a parent would give to a child who wants to go into the uh, uh, acting arena. But nevertheless, he supported me on that when uh, he saw that I was working on a show like that. And everything I got from the Asian American community was overwhelmingly and strongly positive. So you were very much aware, even at the time, that Star Trek had a, um, a political and social voice. Uh, beyond simply the, the, the adventure in space. I, I think that there may be a lot How of could anyone not be? I mean, <laughs> what was the blowback? You're aware of some negative blowback? No, no. I was, I was honestly asking just you on a personal level. Oh, a journalistic that was not something, question. It <laughs> was not something that I had heard about, and I was just wondering if it was anything that you would... Honestly, this is something that John and I talked about when we were first going through the original series, I guess a couple of years ago now. One of the great things that Star Trek did was just treat what was happening on the Enterprise as de rigueur in a way. I mean, one of my favorite scenes, honestly, is when I think it was like the fourth or fifth episode, Uhura is walking around bored. And and she's in space. <laughs> and she's doing things that we will never be able to do in our lifetimes. Um, and, and she's kind of bored because it's sort of same old, same old. And what's fantastic is you get that, I mean, on so many levels in Star Trek, including the fact that, hey, we're in the middle of a Cold War as people are sitting there watching this, but there's Chekhov. Well, actually, he didn't get there until season two, but you get the idea. And there's Uhura, and there's Sulu, and there's this guy with the pointy ears. I mean, the fact that it's just, 
it's not it's with the exception of when Kirk is actually trying to upset Spock because there is something that he has to have done. All of these different people are just working together and nobody's making a big deal about all about the fact that all of these people are working together because they got work to do. Well, the civil rights movement is raging Mm -hmm. when uh, Sheriff Bull Connor is uh, is setting the uh, fire hose and Mm -hmm. and uh, attack dogs on other people. You know, un- unarmed people mm-hmm. demonstrating. And how far have we come from that uh, situation 50 years ago today? When you have what's happening in uh, Baltimore today, or the, the name of the city, Ferguson, has become uh, the uh, label for that sort of thing. Unarmed young African American men being shot down by law enforcement officers. You know, lawlessness. I mean, innocent people, mm-hmm. unarmed, who happen to be young and black, being shot down. And it's happening time after time after time. It's been happening. And so we may have come a long way to have an African-American president. But here we are. How far uh, have we advanced? Fifty years ago, this year, the... Um, uh, the, uh, the voting rights bill was signed by President uh, Lyndon Johnson, and there's still voter suppression going on. We have a lot of work still to do. Let's talk about another um, civil and social rights issue that is near and dear to your heart, um, because I, I know that uh, you, you actively campaigned uh, for marriage equality in California and in the rest of the United States. Um, and I'd like to talk about that on kind of a, a personal level for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I read your autobiography, To the Stars, and enjoyed mm-hmm. it immensely. And when I was done with it, I thought, well, this is great information, and, it, and it's a fun and engaging read. But there was something missing, and that was the personal mm-hmm. element. I didn't know about your relationships, and, and not that mm-hmm. it's any of my business, <laughs> but but it did seem... Oh, no, if I'm writing an autobiography... You know, autobiography, mm-hmm. uh, clearly, uh, it belongs in an autobiography. Right, right. But I was being true to the me of that time. You know, it, I would not have been an actor. I could not have done Star Trek. I could not be who I am today uh, because of the climate of the time. It was foolish First of all, just to pursue an acting career for anybody was uh, a big throw of the dice. Mm -hmm. Here, you know, it's my life that I'm committed to a career in uh, such an uncertain arena. But then if I were to be fully me, who I really was, a gay American, I would not be cast. I would never uh, be working as an actor. I had to be closeted because I remember... It was when I was in my teens, there was a stunningly good-looking blonde actor who was in almost every other uh, movie coming from Warner Brothers as the romantic lead, a guy named Tab Hunter, Mm -hmm. clearly a a made-up name. (laughs) But he was uh, constantly working, and he was a heartthrob. But when it was exposed, one of the the, um, sensational uh, rags... Uh, exposed him as gay, 
he faded. He disappeared from, from view. And I, that was an object lesson for me. You cannot be gay and hope to have an acting career. So I was closeted all the way through. And I was active in all these other social justice issues, you know, the civil rights movement, uh, the peace movement during the war, the uh, redress for uh, Japanese Americans uh, for the uh, unconstitutional incarceration. But I was silent on the single issue that was organic to me. That was an immutable part of me. I, I'm gay. But I, I passionately wanted my career. That well, was my life. So, so as And a... so the silence on the gay issue in my autobiography, which was published in 1994, mm-hmm. was a true reflection of the meat de- then. Yes, at that time, I was going to uh, gay bars. Uh, I've had... Uh, relationships. But if I had talked about that, my career would have been gone. I may not have appeared in Star Trek Six as Captain Sulu. That was the reality. And I was reflecting that reality of the times. Well, can I ask, how did that sit with you then as somebody who is very aware of the political voice of the show Star Trek that says everybody has a seat at the table, everybody is equal, we can all work together. And then you're and holding on to this. Did the show really of- show the gay issue? No, no. it did not. No. As a matter of fact, I had a very private conversation with Gene, and he said, I'm walking a tightrope. All these issues are not being dealt with other, uh, on other shows. I can deal with it because I'm uh, metaphorically dealing with it in uh, terms of science fiction. And so, you know, I'm dealing with it, uh, and I can do it. But did you also know that in that episode where uh, Kirk kisses Uhura, a black and white kiss, that was one of our lowest rated shows because the Southern stations wouldn't carry it. So our ratings for that episode plummeted. That's how dangerous a tightrope Gene was walking. And he said if he dealt with a gay issue, then it would have been kaput. He would not be able to make any statement. That was the reality of the times, and Star Trek reflected that. How did you know that the time was right for you to then be How did I know? And be who you are now publicly, to be out. Yes. Yeah. In 1969, the same year that uh, Star Trek was canceled, something else that was um, that impacted me profoundly happened all the way across the country in New York City, in Greenwich Village. There's a uh, a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn, mm-hmm. and when uh, the police raided that in uh, that a uh, gay bar, uh, you know. The police had been raiding uh, gay bars um, throughout uh, history. And they, it happened in Los Angeles, too. You know, here were uh, gay people and lesbians enjoying each other's company, relaxed, their guard down, and the police would raid them and make them march out, out of the bars and put them on paddy wagons and take them down to uh, the police station, fingerprint them, take a picture of them, the mugshot, and put their names on a list. This was terrorism 
by law enforcement officers. They were innocent people, but they were criminalized simply because they perceived gay people in a stereotype in the same way that Japanese Americans were perceived in terms of stereotype, not as who we really were. I mean, we were doctors and teachers and, and yes, uh, 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 railroad workers and farmers, but we looked like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, and that's why they imprisoned us. And the same thing was happening with gay people with these raids on gay bars. And the people at, at, uh, uh, in the uh, Stonewall Inn that summer of uh, 1969 wouldn't take it anymore, and they started throwing things at the... Uh, 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 the police that came in, uh, ashtrays, beer bottles, chairs, and they um, they retreated and and, and uh, called for reinforcement. And but in the meantime, their phone calls were made from inside the bar to their friends in uh, Greenwich Village, and gays and lesbians came pouring out. And that was the Stonewall riots, which turned into a movement, uh, the Gay Liberation Movement. And I wanted to be a part of that, but I wanted my career and my livelihood. So I was silent through it. But that movement started to affect a society, and society began to change. And in 2004, Massachusetts, uh, the uh, state Supreme Court of Massachusetts, ruled that marriage equality was constitutional. And then the year after that, in 2005, this time legislatively, not judicially, but through the uh, uh, legislature, both houses of the California legislature, the uh, Assembly and the Senate, passed the marriage equality bill. All it needed to get the, um, to become the uh, law of the state was the signature of the governor, who happened to be Arnold Schwarzenegger at that time. When he ran for governor, he said, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my best friends are gays and lesbians. So he, he became governor with that kind of political rhetoric. And I thought he is probably going to sign it. But he, he, his base was the uh, right-wing Republican uh, base. And he um, responded to that. And he vetoed that bill. And my blood was boiling. But I was still home. I've been together with uh, Brad for a long time. Uh, He's my husband now. Uh, And um, we were watching the late night news. And I saw young people pouring out onto Santa Monica Boulevard, venting their rage against Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I felt the same way. And here we were at home watching TV. And so uh, Brad and I talked about it, and I decided, well, it's time that uh, I finally spoke up. And so I talked to the press for the first time in 2005 as a gay man, and I blasted Arnold Schwarzenegger's veto. And uh, ever since then, I've been very active as I've been active in, on other social justice issues, on uh, equality for LGBT people. And uh, it is very liberating. I, it's, I, I feel truly who I am now. 
you know, we've been talking about kind of the parallel of uh, Star Trek and civil and social rights and the, and the progression of humanity. And uh, you said that you're an optimist. And uh, I think we all very much admire and respect the kind of work that you do on the social front. And I'm curious, what do you think are the most important topics that need to be addressed by us now to ensure that we get to this better, progressive, more egalitarian future? You know, that's a very journalistic question. The most, (laughs) the (laughs) most important, the most lovable, the most, you know, there are so many issues. I mean, there, there are international issues and there are domestic issues that are crucially important. And there are global issues that are vital to us. Uh, Internationally, we have uh, this Islamic terrorism, which comes out of nowhere. You know, it just happened yesterday in uh, Texas, and uh, 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 it happened in 9-11. Religious extremists who become murderous is what we have to deal on this uh, uh, terrorism issue. It's very important. It's literally a life and death issue. Uh, domestically, uh, we've been talking about a lot of the uh, issues that still exist today. You know, the Ferguson, the uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, Baltimore issue. It's the it's the core of that issue is is racism. Racism is still here. The immigration issue boils down to racism. Here again, after 9/11, I happen to be the uh, chairman of the board of the Japanese American National Museum, which uh, we founded, and. Uh, we Japanese Americans immediately sensed what might happen with uh, Arab Americans in this country, and you know Arab Americans have been here for generations now, and so we immediately organized um, a, a candlelight ceremony, and we invited uh, leaders of the uh, Arab American community to join us, and we had older Japanese Americans. I was a child then, so my perspective is quite different uh, on my. Uh, personal perspective is different on that. So we had older Japanese Americans talk about that. And because the museum is uh, uh, two blocks from City Hall, the uh, candlelight ceremony turned into a candlelight march to City Hall and back. And because LA Times is right across from uh, uh, City Hall, we got a a lot of good coverage. But I decided that uh, we've got to do more. The the biggest... uh, um, Arab American community in the United States is in Dearborn, Michigan, of all places. Who would have thunk? And so we uh, moved our board meeting, the next board meeting, to uh, Dearborn. And uh, again, we invited uh, uh, leaders from the Arab American community there in Dearborn to speak with us. And so, uh, you know, there's this issue of race that we still haven't come to grips with. We fought a bloody civil war over it and it didn't and now we're going through the anguish of uh, all these police shootings so the, on the domestic domestic issue but i i, I kind of touched on the the environmental issue when i th- uh, talked about the public transportation you know the very air that we breathe the water that we drink the food that we eat that's grown out of the soil uh, it, it, they're all being polluted 
uh, last year I was in Beijing, and the air there is unbelievably filthy. We had our masks on all the time there. Man's suicidal uh, despoiling of the very environment that we live in. And there are still politicians in America who say, you know, I'm not a scientist. We know they're not scientists. <laughs> they're politicians. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, they try to uh, avoid answering that. They, 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 they uh, have their heads like ostriches in the ground. So we ha there isn't one single issue that is the greatest. We, on many levels, we have great uh, threats to civilization and to our existence. And yet you're optimistic. <laughs> I, I, I'll get off my soapbox. No, no. I, no that, that, that was but you, you, you yeah. dragged out the soapbox for me, so I just climbed on top of yeah, it. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that's what we talk about on our show. It's what, what are the, the multitude of issues that, that were raised in popular culture that have a, a true and real-world impact that, that need to be Precisely, addressed. because yeah. that's what Star Trek dealt with. Yeah. You know, Star Trek Four was about the environment and our our interrelationship with the whales, specifically in that case. So uh, uh, all this is relevant to a discussion of Star Trek. And yet we get emails saying, I like your discussion about Star Trek Four, just not all the environmentalism. <laughs> <laughs> it is the same Well, whales you know, we, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. <laughs> Yeah. We get uh, ignorant people as well as brilliant people. Uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a Star Trek fan, and he will not agree with that fan <laughs> <laughs> who said, who, uh, uh, the fan that you quoted. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to me that, I mean, you can lay out all of those Honestly, what sound like dire things that we're facing, and yet you 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 declare yourself an optimist as well. You, well, a lot, you know, a lot of the things I mean, you... we can wallow in the dire things, right. but life is really wonderful too. I mean, you know, that's why we we love life. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why we're optimistic. That uh, we, I mean, I'm just looking out at my garden, and there's uh, that lavender flower that's uh, flowering. And uh, the roses are bursting white. You know, uh, it's the world we live in is infinite diversity and infinite combinations with the good and the bad and the ho-hum as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I deal with everything. But, I, you know, because I love the wonderful things, I try to deal with the horrible things that keep us from enjoying the wonderful things of life. So then... With a lot of the things that I mean, especially in social media and and uh, and yeah, places that were sort of hit uh, with culturally, um, you tend to approach a lot of the issues that you address in in very sort of humorous ways. Is that is that intentional or is that just who you are? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you can get uh, fish shaking, teeth gritting, uh, serious about things, mm -hmm. but sometimes you can be more effective by. Uh, putting it in a larger context and seeing the silliness of it all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Which is how I mean, Star Trek is able to do what Star Trek was able to do. Oh, no, we're not talking about racial issues. It's a bunch of guys in space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, resilience is the ability to, uh, while dealing with the uh, challenges, to be able to find the joy in life as well. 
People still fall in love. People still get married. They have children. You know, isn't that wonderful? All right, Ken. Ken, I, I first of all, thank you again to George Takei for coming on. I feel the need to defend myself. <laughs> okay. Oh, sure. Well, he's not here. Sure, I know what you're going to do. No, no, you, you really. No, dude. Yeah, I'm I, doing I, this. Okay. <sighs> As I've told you, all right, yeah. I, I've lived in New York. I've lived in Chicago. I, I've traveled to many great cities, London, Paris, Tokyo. And I have ridden some fantastic public transportation. No mm-hmm. question about it. Living in Los Angeles, we have some beautiful uh, uh, light rail stations, some beautiful subway stations. Um, we are not known for having the greatest public transportation system in the world. We're mm-hmm. not known for having the most extensive public transportation system in the world. Uh, things are better. And, and obviously, we have Mr. TK to thank for some of that progress in a big mm-hmm. way. Um, so thank you, George, for doing that. But, um, you know, my, my point was not that um, all this doom and gloom in L.A. and we have nothing here. We actually have some great stuff here, and I love living in this city. Um, it's just when you stack up the great cities of the world and you look at the ones that have had fantastic public transportation systems for 100 years or more, eh, L.A. usually doesn't make that list. That's all I'm saying. Here's what I here's the angle that I think Mr. Takei was taking. Okay, um, I quote the Muppets: mm-hmm. "Life's like a movie. Write your own ending. Keep believing. Keep pretending. Look, you don't talk bad about the public transportation system and expect it to get better. You talk, you know, you talk about people using the public transportation system and maybe they do, and then it gets better because there's more money going into it and there are more people saying, well, this is great if it went more than ten blocks." You know. <laughs> I mean, so I'm just I'm just saying, I I think, you know, I mean, he is obviously his excitement about things. And it's especially amazing when you're considering when you consider how difficult uh, things were early on in life. Sure. Uh, His excitement and the fact that he was only able to come out relatively recently, too. I mean, in, in, in some ways, he has not lived necessarily as as freely or as openly. I mean, both literally and figuratively as he might like. And yet his level of of excitement and exuberance for things uh, is infectious, and I think I think he probably thinks that one of the ways to do that is to maybe speak a bit more positively than say the LA train sucks. Hey, hey, I, I have <laughs> fully enjoyed the LA subway for a good ten blocks. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. See, it there was, you go. It was maybe great. Say, maybe it was, say that one time I had great. to get from point A to point. Eh, relatively close to B, and it was an awesome ride. <laughs> like A and a half, and it was fantastic. <laughs> so, All right, so yeah. there you go, and, and I feel certain he doesn't listen to the show, so you're probably safe in having made your comment.
it, it was funny. I, I didn't get to mention that uh, while you were uh, shaming me about uh, uh, public transportation, the thing that came back into my head was two years ago, I filmed an interview with you, George, and uh, you told me that I needed to do more push-ups, that I, that I wasn't your type. <laughs> so, so twice now, twice now, I've, uh, I, I've been the, uh, the punchline for George Takei. So... <laughs> Well, are you doing your push-ups? Well, you told me to, so yeah, yeah. Oh, you're good, good. I have to. Good, I'm but... glad you listened to me. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.